chapter 6, starting in verse 10, this is what the Word of God has to say. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that, that, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is a letter that Paul has written to the church there in Ephesus. And these words, these final instructions of him teaching the church or commanding the church to put on the armor of God comes at the end of a much longer passage of, of instruction. In chapter 4, Paul had um, given instruction on because you've been transformed by the gospel, then there ought to be unity within the body of Christ. Later in that same chapter, he, he encouraged the church to live according to the new life that is in Christ. In chapter 5, he instructed the church and believers to walk in love by imitating God. Later in chapter 5, he gave instructions for how husbands and wives are to relate to one another as a testimony unto the gospel. The same thing in chapter 6, where in the first few verses, he gives instructions to, to children. And then later after that, how slaves and masters are to relate to them, to each other. All of those under the gospel heading, all of those as being transformed by the gospel and giving testimony to it. Then in these verses, verses 10 uh, through 19, he gives these final instructions that include this, this command to put on the armor of God. When we come to a passage like this, we cannot ignore the reality that Jesus, that, that Paul is teaching us, listen, the reality of walking in faith, the reality of being a believer and walking in obedience to, to Jesus is your life is going to be a spiritual battle, a spiritual contest that is not light and fluffy, that has its dangers and toils and snares, that it has its real reality that in our present until Jesus comes back that we must and that we will confront. And the only way we are going to be able to make it through this battle, the only way we're going to be able to persevere through these days is to put on the armor of God. I, with that said, I think we ought to be preaching this passage much more often. I had conversations this week with a dear friend of mine, much younger than me, sharing his testimony of some dark places he had been and it was a reminder to me again of what great threat our students are under, our college students are under, and the great destruction that they are experiencing these days. So I want to give attention to this passage, but I, I want to do something a little bit different than maybe is a familiar territory in this passage. Most of the time when we teach or preach this passage, we quickly go to the pieces of armor. 
and we preach and we teach on each individual piece and what it means, and that is an appropriate way to to exegete this passage. It is a right way to to work through this passage and very helpful to our our understanding of it. But this morning, um, I I will give some attention to that, but I want to give the majority of our attention not to the individual pieces of armor, but the very reason why we need them and who has provided them and the, the, the overarching reason for them. And so here's how we're going to divide our time. Number one, we're going to start with we must fight the right enemy. If you're fighting the wrong enemy, if you're fighting the wrong fight, you will not be successful in in, in battle. We must fight the correct, the right enemy. Secondly, we must stand in the true power. So the, the only way we're going to be able to persevere, the only way we're going to be able to stand firm until the end is if we, we stand in the true power of the living God. And I think Paul is talking here through this, this discussion of the armor of God of how do we do just that and, and stand in the might of God. And then lastly, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to engage with confidence. Proper equipment, proper battle attire gives you a sense of confidence as you enter into the conflict that you are prepared for the battle. But let's begin with fighting the right enemy. So if you look with me back in the passage, um, Paul begins with an admonition, an encouragement, verse 10, stand strong. That's the the command, stand strong uh, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, he he then encourages us, put on the, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But then in verse 12, he, he sets our attention for why these things, why we need to put on the armor of God. So look with me in verse 12 where, where Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So a couple of things about this. First of all, When we think about fighting the right enemy, we must understand that this fight is a spiritual uh, conflict, not a material conflict. Spiritual, not material. Now, our attention is most often and most naturally focused on what we can see, feel, and touch. So when you think about who or what your enemy is, most of the time we think about a person something or someone maybe it's an organization but it's but our enemy is something that is tangible it's something we can see and feel and touch but verse 12 redefines the battle that you and i are experiencing our conflict is not against flesh and blood it is not against our neighbors it is not against our bosses or or that crazy family member that drives us nuts at thanksgiving it is not against our political opponent who we disagree vehemently with. And it's not even against our country's enemies who who threaten us. Our conflict is against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, this does not mean that that we do not have conflicts with people. So when we preach this passage, it does not mean that we don't have real enemies that are tangible. It doesn't mean that there are not not enemies or or countries or armies that would like to to do us harm in our nation and, 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 and invade us. It's not an ignoring of that, but it's a recognition that the real battle, the real consequential battle for believers is not here in the material. It is in the spiritual. Paul's point is that the real battle is not fought against the things here on earth, but against spiritual battles. 
Verse 12 redefines who we are fighting and how we are to fight. If we are simply fighting flesh and blood, we would, we would, then the battle will be won or lost according to our own strength and our own ability. Wars are won and lost based on the strength and might and strategy of your armies. If you're fighting your individual foe, then you're going to win that battle based on your intellect, your strategy, or your personal strength. Because this battle is a spiritual conflict, the weapons of this world will be of little use. Fighting the right enemy begins with understanding who our enemy is. Our enemy is the devil and the schemes that he brings to destroy us. It's a spiritual, not material fight, and it is a reality of evil, not political. Now, I struggled with how to phrase this, this point, because I fear that using the word political would, would, would cause some of us to misunderstand me. So let me give a little extra explanation here. I use the word political here in the sense of the efforts of man to control and manipulate society. So um, I'm not saying that we don't participate in politics. I'm not saying that, that, that we should ignore politics. But, but what I am saying is when, when Paul talks about the real battle and the real conflict for, for the reality of our souls, it's not a question of politics. It's not a question of man's mechanisms to control or manipulate society. There, is, has, there has been and there is a false belief that, um, that maybe has subsided in recent years but has always been around and tends to sort of grow and recede uh, in different years. That there's this false belief that, that, that it oftentimes has been prominent, uh, played a prominent role in the church that, 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 that is that if Christians could conquer and control the political world, then the whole world would be all good and better. Now, there is, at least in a perfect world, some truth to that. So if Christians could write laws that were according to the righteousness of God and then rule perfectly according to the righteousness of God, that would be well indeed. But I don't know anybody that's, not, that's without sin. And I don't know any government or political system or, or power system that doesn't have the corruption of sin in it. One of the blessings, I think, of recent years in the church is that we have abandoned or at least pushed away from this idea that if we just elect the right person to be president, we just get the right governor, we just elect the right the senator or congressman, if we just get the right laws written, then, then the whole world will be Christian and all will be well. Friends, the problems of this world, listen to me carefully, are not simply political problems. The problems of this world come from the presence of evil. I want to say that again because this changes everything we, we think about. The problems of this world are not primarily political problems. The problems of this world are from the presence of evil. So often you'll hear politicians and even well-intended Christians talk about oh, we need to write new regulations and laws to restrain evil. And, but there's always sort of a subtext to that that we can eradicate evil. Friends, government is really good at restraining things and pushing back at things and controlling things, but it cannot control the evil of man's hearts. The best written law cannot overcome the destruction of evil. The most researched public policy cannot overcome the destruction of evil. The most robust law enforcement cannot eradicate evil. 
Too often Christians look to the powers of this world to address the destruction of evil. But the presence of evil must be confronted with spiritual weapons, not the efforts of man. So what I'm saying is when we look at the world today and we go, man, it's really broken. We look at the world today and we go, there's some really messed up stuff that is happening. For a Christian, our first impulse ought not to be, let's go elect the right people and write the right laws. Our first impulse ought to be, get on our knees and fight the spiritual battle. Because if you can transform somebody who's dead to alive in Christ, you've done much more than write a law in Atlanta or in Washington, D.C. It's also eternal, not temporary. You may have heard the phrase, it's often repeated, that you might win a battle but, but lose the war. This phrase references when a temporary or short-term game is won, but the greater or larger purpose is lost. We're often tempted to fight and give our attention to the temporary battles of our world. Now, this is not to say that the present struggles are not worth our time and energy, but this is to say that where our ultimate attention should be is on the kingdom of God and what the Lord is doing. Listen to me, friends. Even as nations fall and crumble, the kingdom of God is advancing. The only kingdom that never decreases but only increases is the kingdom of God. And our first impulse, our first allegiance ought to be to the eternal kingdom of God, not the temporary kingdoms of this world. There will be seasons when all seems lost from our perspective. There'll be seasons when it seems like it's all going our way. There'll be seasons when it seems like the church is losing and the gospel is in retreat. But in such moments, we must remember that there may be temporary conflicts, but, the, but, the, but, 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 but our true conflict is a spiritual one. And that true conflict is one that is fought over eternal things. Fought over the eternal salvation of men and women. And the victory that was secured when Jesus left the tomb is already done when he left that tomb empty. Listen to me carefully on this. The real battle that is happening today is not in Atlanta. It's not in Washington, D.C. It's over the eternal destination of the hearts and souls of men and women, boys and girls. Did you hear me? Convert someone to your political point of view and you've done nothing but get a vote. Convert someone to the saving grace of Jesus and you've changed eternity forever. Amen? Fight the right enemy. Secondly, stand in the true power. So back up just a little bit to verse 10 and 11 and then 13. So in verse 10 and 11... Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then he repeats that again in verse 13 where he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, therefore, stand. Stand in the true power. So if we are fighting the right enemy... We also must stand in the true power. If you stand in the wrong power, if you stand in your own power and your own might, you will surely fail. But if we stand in the right power, we will have victory. So when we think about this, we understand that the battle is the Lord. So notice that Paul repeats himself twice in this passage. In verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. In verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Now, this is the command, uh, uh, this, this is the command uh, 
in response to the declaration that our fight is not against flesh and blood. So he says, our fight is not against flesh and blood. Therefore, put on the armor of God. Not the armor of men, not the armor of intellect or ability. Put on the armor of God. Within this command, we see, I think, three characteristics of how we're to respond to the spiritual battle. And the first is a call to be strong in the Lord. He's not just adding words to his sentence there. I think he's actually pointing to the reality of where our strength comes from. The battle is not our battle. It is the Lord's battle. So recognition that the battle we fight is not our own, but the Lord. We fight for the Lord. We fight according to the command of the Lord. We fight under the banner of the Lord. And most importantly, we fight under the victory of the Lord. Now, here's the good news here. The victory of God's battles are already determined. Amen? I don't know if you're like this. This is, a, this is not a good sports fan behavior, but this is what I do. When I'm flipping through my channels, and I used to come by ESPN Classic, and see an old game, I would Google to see who won it if I didn't remember it, particularly if it's a team that I liked, because I don't want to watch it if we lost. Amen? If we won, I'd be like, oh, I can give an hour or two to this, because it's fun to watch a game that you know your team's going to win. Now, friends, I'm, I got good news for you. God never loses. Amen? And there is no power on earth, above the earth, or anywhere else that is greater than the mighty power of God. So when, when Paul is encouraging us to put on the armor of God, he is calling us to, to join in the battle that is the Lord's battle. And the outcome is sure. We're to fight the Lord's battle, and we are to stand in the strength of God. So our strength to, to stand firm and to, to, to do these things, to endure in these moments, is the strength that we find in God. In verse 10, the command to be strong in the Lord is coupled with being in the strength of his might. The very first response of anyone who is honest when reading this passage is to acknowledge that you do not have the strength or ability to stand firm in the spiritual battle. Now, this is just a word of honesty. So if, if I was encouraging you to say, all right, we've got, a, we've got some people we've got to fight. We've got some wars we've got to wage. I'm talking about like people wars. Many of you would bow up and say, all right, let's get after it. But when we start talking about spiritual battles, that makes most of us a little afraid. We don't understand spiritual battles. We rightly feel inadequate and, and weak when we think about spiritual battles. And that's the right way to think and, until you come to this passage and, and understand that Paul is not calling you to fight the spiritual warfare in your own strength. He's calling you to fight the spiritual warfare in the might of God. Our strength is in God. So notice that the pieces of armor are all provisions of the Lord to us. These are not things that we make. These are things that God gives. They come out of his strength and his power. We are called to stand not in our own, our own strength, but in the Lord's strength. The spiritual battle is not, is not dependent on you or on me. The outcome of this battle is not determined by you or me. The advancement of the church and the proclamation of the gospel and the advancement of, of God's kingdom is not dependent on you or me. These things are singularly dependent on God and accomplished by his might. But here's the glorious truth. We are called not to accomplish these things, but to stand firm in the might of God that he might use us to accomplish these things in his might and in his power and in his will and in his time. Stand in the true power. The battle is the Lord. Our strength is in God. And our provisions 
are from God alone. There's also a word in this command that I think is often overlooked. We're called to put on the full armor of God. In other words, the understanding of this passage is not that you'd put on the sandals and that's it, or just the breastplate and that's it, or just the helmet. It's an all or nothing. So if you're going to put on the armor of God, you are putting on. In fact, the assumption when you read this passage is that it all comes as a, as a package and you put it all on. I don't want to make more of this than the passage intends, but I do think this point, uh, uh, this does point to the provision of God. If we are to stand against the schemes of the devil, we must be equipped with the right equipment. God is the one who provides this equipment. And God has abundantly and sufficiently provided for us to withstand the attacks of Satan. This is a beautiful truth, friends. God's provided. The task is overwhelmingly intense. You are called to stand firm and persevere under the schemes of the devil. That sounds terrible. But if we, if we put on the armor of God, we are well provided for. God has provided, and we must receive it with thankfulness and put it on that we might be obedient to this command. Stand in the, in the right power. And then lastly, engage with confidence. Now, I want you to skip all the way toward the end of the passage and look with me in, in, uh, in verse 14. So verse 14, Paul gives all of these, these pieces of armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, uh, the sandals of, of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, uh, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. But notice what he says in verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. Engage with confidence. The calling here is to stand firm. The idea there is unwavering. The idea there is you're not backing up. You're not giving in, but to stand up, to stand firm, to stand against the efforts, the, the will, the, the schemes, the drive of the evil one. And the command is simply to stand, verse 11 and 13, to stand against the schemes of the devil and to withstand in the evil day. That's verse 13. Because this command is coupled with the assurance of the presence and might of the Lord, there is also a confidence to engage. Now listen to me carefully on this. There are times when military commanders must order some of their troops to engage the enemy in a losing battle. So they send their troops on a a mission that they know they're going to lose because it strategically advantaged the, the, the greater army to do something else that is successful for the war. Now, if you've ever seen a movie like that, 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 those are heroes that do that, that know they're going into a losing situation, but do it for the, for the greater good of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the army and for the, for the mission. Those make for great movies. Those, those soldiers make for great heroes. That's not the idea here. The idea for the, of this passage is you, you, you just got to, you know you're going to lose, and so just do your best, stand up, and 
when, when you get overwhelmed by the schemes of the devil, then just, you just kind of knew that was coming. That's not the idea here. The idea in this passage is that we face the evil efforts of Satan in the confidence of God's might. I, I think about this in the context of like how we experience a really bad thunder and wind storm. We've all lived through them and experienced them. I, I've experienced them in, in tents out camping on little islands, very little trees around us, and didn't think my little tent was going to stand up. I've experienced them in mobile homes that when the, when the wind would move, the entire structure would creak and moan and move, and you wondered if it was going to stay still. And I've experienced them in buildings where if you didn't look out the window, you wouldn't even have known that there was a great storm because the building was so um, strong and mighty that the wind did not move it, did not shake it, and even the sound from it was hard to hear. Now, experiencing a windstorm in each of those types of structures is very different. When you're in a little tent on the middle of an uh, island and, and, a, and, a, and, and, and a windstorm is coming and, and blowing your tent down, you have a much higher sense of anxiety and fear than if you're in a strong building that you can't even hear the wind blowing from the inside. There's a confidence that comes when you're in a strong building that you're confident you can stand there and look out the window without any fear or anxiety at all because you're confident in the structure that you are in. That's the sense, I think, that we are to approach the spiritual battle. Our confidence to engage in the battle and stand against the efforts of Satan comes not from our ability, but from the power of the living God. He is our strong tower. He is the one who provides for us to stand up and endure. He is the one who takes care of the schemes of the devil. We're commanded to stand, but we stand in the power of the living God. Therefore, we are able to engage in the conflict with confidence in the mighty power of the living God. And so I think with that is not only do we stand against the efforts of the evil one in the power of the mighty God, but we also endure in moments of hardship. In verse 13, Paul commands that we are to stand firm. The idea here is that we do not waver or fall, but remain even after being battered and buffeted by the attacks of Satan. One of the, one of the things about pastoring is that over the years, we, we, we participated in ministry in Texas and South Carolina and Georgia, that we've made friends and done ministry with folks from Texas all the way here. And so there are some friends of ours that we served in ministry together that because we're no longer in the church with them and separated by many miles, we don't see them very often. Every then, every now and then, just according to God's grace, we'll, we'll get to run up or see some friends that, that we once served with in a former church. And I've learned to ask the question, are you still walking faithfully with the Lord? Because the friendship is sweet. I'm thankful for that. But what I really want to know is, are you still white hot for Jesus like I remembered you when we were serving together in church? The question is, will you stand firm? The buffeting and the, the pressure and the schemes of the evil one are coming with the purpose of moving you away from the gospel, with the purpose of distracting you away from the kingdom, with the purpose of keeping you from the righteousness of God. Will you, over time, consistently, from beginning to the end, will you stand firm even as the buffeting of the evil one comes? You are commanded to do just that. If you're a follower of Christ, the assumption in this passage is that difficult moments will come. Satan is actively working to keep us, as many of us as he can, in the darkness and confusion of sin, away from the truth of the gospel, 
moving toward the destruction of sin and, and it's, uh, uh, presently and ultimately to keep as many of us as he can out of the glory of heaven in the presence of God. Friends, if you labor for the kingdom of God and live a life pleasing to God, you, will, you are actively, by definition, you are actively working against the will and the purposes of Satan. Satan may have been defeated at the, at the cross of Calvary, but he is still actively working to destroy as many as possible until the coming day of Jesus. The promise of this passage is that the ability and power to endure through such difficulties It's not in your tenacity. It's in the power of the living God. Paul instructs us in verse 13 to stand, to take up the armor of God that you may be able. Are you shaking today? Are the schemes of the devil threatening you today? Do you not feel all that confident in your your ability to stand firm today? Take up the full armor of God. Stand in the mighty power of the living God. Because the armor of God gives endurance in those moments of difficulty and allows us to remain faithful until the end. Look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18, Paul encourages us to pray, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance. I think what he's pointing to there is as you take up the full armor of God, which I think praying at all times is part of that actively participating and taking on the full armor of God, that produces in us the endurance to remain faithful until the end. So after Paul lists all the armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the readiness uh, given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, he then gives this one last instruction to pray at all times. Have you ever noticed that when you're keenly aware of the attacks, your prayer life gets in order? Now, I want to press you just a little bit on this because I know that when life is good, your grass is green, your kids are behaving, and plenty of money in your bank account, and everything's going well for you, that also tends to be a season where you're not as intense in your prayer life. And even just the spiritual disciplines get a little lax, like attending church and Bible study and, those sort of, and reading Scripture and those sort of things. When there's a little danger and the schemes of the devil are aware to you, that's when you get right. We're going we're to get right back in church and we're going to start praying faithfully and, and those sort of things. Now, here's where I want to press you. The moments when you think all is going well, I think are the more dangerous moments than when you know things are not going well. Because there's never a moment when the devil is not scheming. Somebody say amen. And friends, sometimes the schemes of the devil are dressed up like things that you want anyway. They come like a raise that allows you to to skip out on church because you have a little bit more money for an extra couple of vacations. They come by things that look attractive, but they actually take your attention away from the righteousness of God. They, They come in things that seem okay or benign, but in reality they are stealing you away and your attention away from the righteousness of the Lord. So verse 18, he writes, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. What he's pointing to is that your ability to remain faithful to God until Jesus returns is dependent in your obedience to put on the full armor of God and be aware in every moment at all times of the danger that you, you stand. Perseverance comes not simply by, de, by determined tenacity, 
but divine provision through the armor of God. I've never been good at it, but I've long enjoyed playing racquetball. I'm not good, but I enjoy playing. My enjoyment of the game started a long time ago. When I was growing up, my church had a, had a gym, and our, the pastor that I grew un, uh, up under was a handball player. He loved to play handball. So when they built the gym, they put in a, a racquetball court so he could play handball. So I grew up, as little as I can remember, messing around on that racquetball court and, and learning to play. In recent years, I've enjoyed playing regularly with my, with my friend, Richard Young. We, 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 when we're not broken and broken shoulders and, and wrists, uh, we try to get out there at least once a week and, and play. When I started playing with Richard, it had been a long time since I had played, and so I was out of shape and, and uh, was, was not much of a competitive challenge for Richard, but he was gracious enough to let me play with him. And, and it had been so long since I had played that I really didn't have any equipment anymore. Now, racquetball doesn't need a lot of equipment. You really just need a racket and some racquetballs and, and goggles. But when I went and bought the equipment to play, I just bought a racket because nobody likes to wear goggles. Goggles are frustrating to wear on the racquetball court. When you get hot and sweaty, which you get when you play racquetball, those goggles fog up or they slide down your, your face. When they fog up, you, you can't see. It does give you a good excuse for why you missed the shot, but, but they're frustrating because you can't see. And so, and then between every rally, you're, you're taking them off and you're wiping them. And so I, I, we just, he nor I were wearing goggles for the longest time. Now we knew why you're supposed to wear goggles. Uh, the racquetball, when it hits you and it, it hits Richard more than it hits me, by the way. But when it hits you, it stings at best, and it will leave a whelp at worst. And of course, if that's on your back or your leg, that's one thing. But of course, if that were to hit your eye or your face, that's a whole other thing. And it can do serious damage to your eye, the, the most severe of which is it can, it can blind you. We were well aware of that, but we weren't afraid of that. And so we played for a long time without any goggles at all. That is until one day we were playing. Richard was serving, I was in the backcourt. He served and I returned the serve pretty well with some ump behind it. And as I hit the ball, I, I, you know, I, I turned my head to watch the trajectory of where the ball was going and in that split second realized it was heading directly toward Richard. And he, in that moment, had turned his head to see how I was hitting the ball and it went right to his eye. As soon as it hit him in the eye, he went straight down on the court. And the horror of what I thought had happened, just, you know how those knees starts running through your head? I don't wanna call Tammy and tell her anything about this. But worse than that, have I blinded a friend of mine? Has his life been changed dramatically by this? And he laid on the floor with his face in his hands where I couldn't see his eyes or his face for what seemed like forever. Now the good news is, he eventually set up, his eye was still in his head, praise God for that. And he wore a horror, I mean his face swole up and he was bruised. I told everybody that's what happens when you mess around with a pastor, right? That, but. He looked terrible, but, he, but his eye was safe because it had hit him just below his eye 
right down here and his eye was saved. But do you know what we did next time we played? We went out and bought us some goggles. Oh, we wear those goggles. Ever since then, we wear those goggles religiously. In fact, when, when we're there playing and there's some, maybe some new or some novice players that are getting off the court or before we play or, or, or coming on the court after we play, and a lot of times they don't have goggles either, we're evangelists. We say, young men, you need to, you need to wear some goggles. Let me, and then we, t- we want to tell them a story. Let me tell you what we did to one another and how scared we were. And then we always tell them the worst case scenario. This is what this can do to you. And you need to wear, you need to wear goggles. Now, here's the lesson that we learned that day and the lesson, I think, that we can learn from this passage. Putting on the right equipment requires a correct understanding of the present dangers. If you don't think that racquetball can do any damage to your eye, then it's not worth the aggravation of foggy goggles. And you'll get in that court and you'll play with a ball that's whizzing by your head without any fear at all for what it can do to your eyes. If you don't have any understanding of the spiritual danger you are presently in, you will will, um, skip through life without any concern for this passage, putting on the the, the, the full armor of God and walking obediently in the might and the power of the living God. Putting on the right equipment requires a correct understanding of the present dangers. The right equipment does not remove the danger but the right equipment allows you to endure. You put on goggles on a racquetball court, you still get hit. And you may even still get hit in your face and it will still hurt terribly, but you won't lose an eye. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle. And to ignore this truth will lead to foregoing the spiritual resources needed to stand firm in the Lord. I fear many of us are right there. But rightly recognizing the threats leads to employing the right equipment that would allow you to stand firm against the assaults of the evil one. The evil one is bringing the assault. Are you prepared? The Bible encourages us, it commands us, stand firm, endure to the end, but do so by putting on the full armor of God and standing in the mighty power of the living God. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.